Change the World, the podcast of the Socialist Workers' Party. Each week we'll be bringing you original content and analysis of the social, economic and cultural questions facing the world today. Hi. Two pictures that... Uh, oh, there's a clock here, which is useful. The two pictures that really haunted me, not haunted me, kind of uh, accompanied me this last three days, and I think they both kind of illustrate where we are on the question of Palestine. And I just want to mention them because I think they are connected to our uh, topic to this afternoon about whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Um, one is a very haunting picture, and I've just spoken to friends uh, in Gaza. Uh, I, we don't, I think in socialist meetings we don't do, which is okay. We don't stand up in memory and so on, but I want you just to, for a few minutes, for a few seconds, sorry, to think about uh, the Abu Marhus family. Uh, eight members of that family were sleeping in their home two days ago, and the Israeli army destroyed their home with them inside. Two women, five children between the age of three and eight, and one man were assassinated by the Israeli army. The pictures were all over the world. Nobody showed them in Britain. Nobody showed them in the United States. Nobody showed them in Europe. They showed a terrified Israeli kid, and I'm not underestimating this, running to a very well-defended shelter from a missile that can do very little harm, in essence. These are the pictures that the media today are showing. The bodies of the five children between the age of three and eight were not at all shared with the public. And we still, after 72 years of Israeli operations of ethnic cleansing, occupation, colonization, war crimes, crimes against humanity, we still, in 2019, cannot get even a modicum of fair coverage in the mainstream media in this country. This is abominable. This is part of the issue of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, because the inability to cover the criminality in Gaza is one of the reasons that you get instead an hyperinflated coverage of few emails that may or may not be anti-Semitic, as if this is an issue of, uh, of a threat that threatens people's life or existence. And this imbalance between a, a manipulated hysteria of something that doesn't happen and totally ignorance of what really happens uh, is one of the major challenges that this uh, ridiculous equation of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism uh, is causing, and which we will have to challenge. We have to. We will have to challenge it properly, prob probably, <coughs> in the next uh, five or six years. But there was an uplifting image that many, may, maybe some of you have seen. The Israeli Consul General from New York, Moshe Dayan, no Moshe Dayan, 
Jedayan was another war criminal. This is a, a different Dayan, another criminal. Um, was invited to the Harvard Law School to present the Israeli uh, explanation why the Jewish settlements in the West Bank are legal by international law. And he came to the Harvard Law School, and the minute he opened his mouth, 95% of the people in the audience left. This was really a moment that to savor and would, should be example to all of us here in, in the universities of London and in the UK. We should do these things more often. Uh, the press cannot ignore these kinds of uh, uncivilized behavior by us. So let's be uncivilized and let's show these representatives what we think about even the thought of listening to them, let alone letting them complete their uh, argumentation. So I think it shows you that in a certain level of society, and this is the Harvard School, Harvard Law School, in a certain level of civil society, even in the United States, even in the Ivy League universities of the United States, an equation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism would be ridiculized, and nobody would take it seriously. On the other hand, the main media would not be interested at all in the murder of children and would devote three hours to one email that may or may not have had a stupid reference to, to uh, Zionists or, or Jews. The problem for us, I think, and this would be the major thing that I would like to kind of impress upon you if I can, the major thing for us, or the major problem for us, is that on the face of it, the relationship between Zionism and anti-Semitism looks very complex. And uh, you can't unpack it uh, with a soundbite. The attention span of a modern-day television studio, even a radio debate, and even the broadsheet uh, newspapers, the, the span of attention is so short and so superficial that you can't sort of find a very good slogan to counter the slogan that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. You need the attention of the people uh, whom you want to convince that this is a ridiculous allegation. But you won't be able to do it with a soundbite. So you'll have to find the space and the time to explain to them. I don't think you need uh, a university module uh, of a whole year. Uh, I'm talking about 25 to 30 minutes. That's all you need. But you won't be, it won't be easy to get these 25, 30 minutes to explain. But when you do have the space, uh, that's the only thing you can do. You, you can educate people, because quite a lot of the people in this country who fall into the trap of accepting this equation are doing it out of total ignorance. Not because they're bad people, not because they, they hate uh, Palestinians or Muslims or, or Arabs, or they just like to, to be anti-Corbyn. Some of them, quite a lot, quite many of them actually, uh, are doing it, A, out of ignorance, and secondly, because they don't understand the whole complexity, they say, why should I bother with it? Why should I be go going through uh, the danger of being uh, 
branded as an anti-Semite. I don't need it. I have other problems in life, and they sort of, they don't fight for it. They're not necessarily accepting it, but they're not struggling to refute it because they don't think wrongly, they don't think wrongly, that this is not an important uh, uh, issue. But it is a very, very important issue. And uh, this is not helped by the fact that the politicians who, I think, represent many of us uh, in this country, whether on a local level or a national level, continuously make the same mistake, from the leader of the Labour Party down to the uh, activists that appear in the, Western, in, in, in the British media. They make the same mistake again and again. A, they apologize not understand what they're apologizing for, but they, they, they think that apologizing is good. Apologizing is terrible. Apologizing means that you think there is some, some truth in it, but maybe a, mis a bit of misunderstanding. And secondly, they're willing to play the game instead of doing what many of us who are veteran in appearing in media understand that people like us never get very much space and time to speak. So if you do have the chance to speak, speak of what you want, not of what they want to hear. And every, time, every minute we waste on talking about anti-Semitism instead of talking about Palestine is a wasted minute that was offered to us, but we did not exploit properly. Um, but it's easier said than done. I don't know how many of you have been in television studios or radio studios. It is an intimidating atmosphere. Uh, when you are on the side of the Palestinians, uh, you are mo m most of the time you're sort of martially court, let's say a martial court or kangaroo court, uh, and the atmosphere is never very positive and uh, pleasant. Nobody is there to really listen to you. People are there to to uh, to blame you for uh, supporting quote unquote terrorism and so on. But nonetheless, it's. It's a media outlet, and, and we should use it. So what we should say in these 20, 25 minutes that they're giving us, I think there are a few points, and this is, of course, just uh, in a nutshell, and uh, I promise I'll speak only for half an hour, and we can expand on some of these issues if you want through your comments or, or questions. The important thing is to distinguish the histories of these two uh, isms, if you want. Uh, Zionism and anti-Semitism. It's very important to make the distinction. Um, one of the reasons quite a few people, less so in this country, but very much so in the United States and even in places like Africa and uh, no, uh, Scandinavia, are finding it difficult to uh, challenge Zionism is because Zionism, in essence, and historically speaking, is first and foremost a Christian project, not a Jewish project. It's a Christian project. And because it's an, and not just a Christian project, an evangelical, fundamental Christian project. And because of that, uh, if you think about the United States, which has a regist a regist I'm talking about registered members of 75 million Christian Zionists, which the number is probably much larger, but it's, it's, it's registered. Uh, for them, uh, uh, any attack on Zionism is an attack on their religion, on their 
basic beliefs. But it's important historically to tell people that the whole idea that the Jews who lived in Europe, later on in the United States, should actually go uh, to Palestine was a, a Christian idea. And the reason was twofold uh, from the evangelical point of view. One was there was, there was and still is a belief uh, that uh, the return of the Jews to the Holy Land would precipitate the second coming of the Messiah, would bring about the resurrection of the dead, uh, and everyone who is not a Christian would convert to Christianity or there would be a shish kebab in hell. The second reason that um, uh, this uh, theology developed was anti-Semitic. If the Jews will be in Palestine, they will not be in London. Very simple. And it's a double bill. You get rid of all the Jews you don't want, and you get back the only Jew you do want, Jesus Christ. So, for an evangelical Christian, this is the dream of their life. I mean, they can't ask for more. Not having the Jews and having Jesus with them, who could blame them for being so excited about trips to Israel and of dreaming of the return of the Jews from the 16th century onwards? And actually, when Zionism became a Jewish project, in the mid-19th century, because of the intensifying or, or because of the emergence of a particular uh, brutal and institutional brand of anti-Semitism in Central and Eastern Europe, when Jews felt that despite the fact that they were moving in many places in Europe towards integration and assimilation uh, and the end of discrimination on the basis of their religion, that at that particular moment from the Central Europe and Eastern Europe, a different brand of a brutal anti-Semitism came, then Zionism became one of the many, but by no means the only and not the most popular, uh, response to this modern anti-Semitism. The roots of that anti-Semitism are in the church, uh, the Catholic church, in places like Poland, the Orthodox church in places like Russia, uh, and more towards the central of Europe, it was not even, it was not only a religious kind of anti-Semitism, it was associated with the emergence of romantic nationalism, uh, especially in places like France and Italy, where people began to replace the idea of, of God with the idea of the nation. And the nation became the nation of the race, uh, and if you want to clarify who belongs and who doesn't belong to the race, you need to find someone who definitely doesn't belong to the race. And, and this was the, the, the reason anti-Semitism was such an important element in German uh, romantic nationalism, in Italian romantic nationalism, and in French romantic nationalism. This is the same nationalism that today targets Muslims as the other that proves that they're not part of the race. Uh, the victims have been replaced, but uh, the victimizers are very much the same people. So that was an impulse to, uh, of Zionism 
uh, a Jewish Zionism was to, to deal, first of all, with anti-Semitism, real anti-Semitism, not the fabricated one that we are hearing about in Britain. But there was real anti-Semitism, which translated to pogroms, attacks on Jews, discrimination against Jews, and so on. The vast majority of the Jews decided to leave for England and the United States. A small group uh, was not only motivated by a search for a safe place, but also was excited by idea, but that by that very idea of romantic nationalism. It's that was actually victimizing them. Um, and and um, uh, it was very clear that they could not recreate a Jewish, or they cannot build or form a Jewish national identity in Europe because of anti-Semitism. So they wanted to recreate Jewish European national identity somewhere else. Palestine was a reasonable choice from that perspective because of the connection between Judaism and the Bible, the connection between the Bible and the land of Israel. So it's not that surprising that they thought of Palestine as the place. The question is, of course, did, were they blind to the fact that someone was already living in Palestine? Uh, and in that respect, you can see uh, that several of them were aware of the presence of another people, but it was the very end of the age of colonialism. And in the age of colonialism, non-European people were not considered uh, full human beings with the same rights as Europeans. It was quite easy to dehumanize them, and therefore it was quite easy to think about them as uh, dispensable, that they could be removed for the sake of a project of building a Jewish state. So Zionism was this blend of a movement that wanted to save Jews from Europe, and in many ways saved quite a few Jews be, be from the Nazi genocide that happened uh, in the Second World War, but was also a colonialist movement, or more precisely, a settler colonialist movement that saw the indigenous native population of Palestine as the principal obstacle for creating a Jewish state, and had no inhibitions in choosing the methods and the means for turning Palestine from an Arab country into a Jewish country. And uh, the worst part of this project came uh, in 1948, when uh, the creation of the Jewish state was accompanied by the ethnic cleansing of half of Palestine's population, uh, the demolition of half of Palestine's villages, and the destruction of most of the Palestinian towns. But it was an incomplete ethnic cleansing in 1948. Uh, the, the Jewish state stretched over 80% of Palestine, not 100% of Palestine, and half of the Palestinian population still stayed in Palestine. And much of the Israeli, or, or, or many of the Israeli policies since 48 until today are informed by this incompletion. Uh, in 19, uh, between 48 and 1967, this inability to check out or chuck out and expel all the Palestinians is the main reason for the imposition of a very brutal and callous military rule on the Palestinians who stayed within the Jewish state between 1948 to 1966. The, the idea of occupying the whole of Palestine 
1967 is an attempt to complete the job that was not done in 48. There was a wish, uh, and I wrote about it in my book, uh, The Biggest Prison on Earth, there was a wish in 67 to get rid of the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but uh, the Six-Day War was not long enough in many ways to, to perpetrate such a crime. So they were left with millions of Palestinians, and all the policies of Israel, uh, really uh, now uh, more than 50 years now, of an apartheid, oppression, mass killing, um, uh, collective punishment, everything you know that is a daily repertoire that Palestinians suffer from in the West Bank and even worse uh, so in the Gaza Strip, are still an attempt by the Jewish state to complete the Judaization of an Arab country. Uh, 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 and uh, as long as this will not be completed, I don't think they will stop their uh, uh, criminal uh, policies unless they will give up the idea of having a Zionist state, having a Jewish racist state, and will agree to the idea of having a democratic state uh, for all. But we're very far from that moment, but we should definitely strive for that uh, moment. So just to conclude, when you are condemning Zionist policies before 48, in particular if you are paying attention to what happened in 1948 and you define it as a crime against humanity, which it was, and if you <coughs> describe the daily occurrences in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and inside Israel in the last 50 years as war crimes, as apartheid, as colonization, as oppression, as the worst form of racism, and someone comes to you, all these positions that you hold are actually anti-Semitism. If you, even for one second, take these allegations seriously, you're in trouble. Because you will start a debate in which you will say the killing of the Abu Malhus family of eight, five children, yes, maybe I'll have to explain to you why killing five children uh, is not a crime. You don't want to be in that debate. You don't want to be there. And, and therefore, um, any debate that does not focus on our moral, not right, our moral obligation, especially people who live in this country because of this country's complicity in the crimes of Israel. I don't have time, that's another lecture. Um, of this country's complicity in the crimes against the Palestinians. As if we are not insisting that this is what we are doing and just brush off these attempts to stifle our voice, to make us silent because they cannot they cannot challenge us with facts. They cannot challenge us with a moral position. They have nothing in their arsenal that can really uh, struggle efficiently against our uh, uh, humane position and universal position on Palestine. So they blame us of anti-Semitism. Now, I know it's, it's outrageous that this is what it is all about. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you read long articles in the Times, uh, you, you listen to the BBC, to Radio 4, and, and this reality that cries out, it's so 
clear, it's so transparent, is totally ignored. So either these people are intelligent, and I suppose many people who work in the Times and the BBC and so on are intelligent, and that's worse. That means that they know exactly what they are doing because they're afraid, because someone is paying them. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to investigate. I'm interested in the outcome, not in their motives. Or, which I don't know if it's worse or not, they're ignorant. They don't know on an area that they should know a lot as British journalists. But we should be on the onslaught here, attacking their ignorance or the sinister manipulation of facts and stop apologizing for something we are not and something we are not doing and something that has started only because, and with this I will end, for the first time in the history of any political party in the West since 1948, for the first time there is a slight chance, hopefully not a slight chance, that the leader of, of, or the Prime Minister of Britain or the leader of the major opposition party in Britain holds pro-Palestinian position. This is the whole story. They thought this would never happen. It suddenly unfolded in front of their eyes. They cannot use F-16s. They cannot bomb Jeremy Corbyn. They cannot send Israeli tanks. That's great. They not, cannot send Israeli tanks to, to the Labour Party headquarters. Uh, so they can't use, use the, the main method they usually use to, to silence people. Also in my case, they kicked me out of, of my university in my hometown. In this case, they, they were a bit more limited in what they could do. I must say to their, cynically I would say to their credit, they found a way. They found a way. But the reason that their way is succeeding is because of us, not because it's such a clever way. It's because apparently... Uh, 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 we are too much on the defensive, we're too apologetic, and we forgot that when we talk on these issues, we are representing the suffering and the plight of the Palestinians, not the paranoia and the manipulated paranoia of several people in the Labour Party and the British media. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, agree with many of them, and I would not repeat them. I will just uh, directly answer the questions, and I'll leave the comments uh, as they were very valid. There's no need to, to add or to challenge. Uh, the first question was about Netanyahu, uh, how, how important he was in this whole uh, section. I think there are two things to be said about the 10 years of Netanyahu's rule, who might or might not come to an end, who knows, uh, <coughs> next year. Uh, in those 10 years, uh, uh, it was, the, in many ways, all the shields of complexity that Israel, especially the Israeli Labor Party for many years, or the so-called Israeli peace camp, the left Zionist camp, all these shields of complexity where you supposedly could be a socialist and a Zionist, you could be a colonizer and an enlightened person, you could be a progressive and an ethnic cleanser, um, that all these impossible uh, oxymorons, uh, even the Israeli electorate seemed to, to find them quite ridiculous. And that's why they kicked out the Zionist left. It doesn't exist anymore. And, um, and Netanyahu is just the epitome of this kind of inevitable development, political development inside Israel. 
um, where you cannot really reconcile the ideology of Zionism with uh, universal values, whether they are Marxism, socialism, or even uh, liberalism. The second uh, so-called contribution of Netanyahu, maybe we'll talk about it a bit more in the panel, uh, in the next panel, is I think that it was the kind of coincidence uh, of his appearance in the last few years with Trump in America and several other similar leaders in the West. And what they concocted together, and the, uh, this allegation of anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is part of it, is a, a, a very um, sinister assault on the Palestinians to depoliticize the Palestine question. Uh, this is the new idea that uh, Netanyahu sold quite successfully to many Americans, uh, to many Israelis as well. Uh, there's no political problem in Palestine anymore. There's a humanitarian problem, there's an economic problem, but these can easily be solved. And therefore Israel, uh, for example, uh, closed all the documentation about 1948 in its archive. You cannot see it anymore. That's why the Americans moved their embassy to uh, Jerusalem. That's why America stopped funding UNRWA. This is why the United States uh, kicked out the PLO from uh, Washington and uh, has a new definition for a Palestinian refugee. Only those who are from 48 are refugees, not their descendants. Uh, this is part of the same uh, idea that uh, Jared Kushner was pushing in Bahrain, unfortunately with the support of quite a lot of Arab leaders, that all you need is some, a little bit of Arab money, a little bit of American money, and you can forget about the Palestine question and the Palestinians. I don't think it will succeed, but we have to be aware that this is the nature, this is the legacy of Netanyahu for Palestine. He has other legacies, but this particular one is important for us. Uh, then there was a question of right of return. I should mention that the Labour Party supported the right of return in Brighton, and uh, this is very, very encouraging. Uh, of course, there is no uh, uh, any chance for any reconciliation and solution in Palestine without the full implementation of the Palestinian right of return. That, that goes without saying. It's an internationally recognized right by the United Nations, uh, only a refugee himself or herself can decide whether they want to implement it or not. Uh, I'm not underestimating the uh, difficulties in implementing it on the ground. Uh, it's never easy to have mass repatriation. Uh, if it will be mass repatriation, we don't know. I don't know how many refugees would want to return. It doesn't matter. In principle, everyone should be able to return, um, but we are very far from dealing with this nitty-gritty of how actually it's going to happen. Uh, there are precedents, there are international conventions. Uh, it's not in the sky. We, we can, we can uh, uh, do it. Uh, it's a human effort worth doing because without this, we will never have a closure for the Palestine uh, question. I think at this moment in time, what we should explain to people is why uh, Israel and its supporters refuse to accept the right of return. It's not because there's no place for Palestinians. Uh, it's not even uh, because Israel doesn't want to admit its accountability for the crime of ethnic cleansing in 1948. The only reason in the, uh, that is important is that Israel is a racist ideological state that believes that the state should be only Jewish 
and he doesn't want to see anyone who is not Jewish uh, being a citizen in the state. That's why they are kicking out salium seekers from Africa. Uh, and uh, this uh, is something, it's a very important uh, position to analyze, even if the right of return is not on the agenda now. It's very, very important to talk about it because uh, it really exposes the real nature of the Jewish state. And I, I, I encourage you to, to participate. We have a special uh, meeting on this uh, on November, the, the last day of November, 30th of November, uh, organized by my center in Exeter, Center for Palestine Studies, and the uh, Palestinian Refugee uh, Research, uh, Return Center, the PRC, uh, somewhere in London, don't remember. Uh, but there is a meeting with excellent speakers about it. Um, the question of whether it's not, would, wouldn't it be wiser to stand, to sit and, 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 and put the counter-argument, uh, which, which is a, a fair question. Uh, I think we, we are now in a different position. Uh, we are in a different frame of mind. It took us time to liberate ourselves from the idea that you reach a solution in Palestine through dialogue between uh, the two sides. Uh, uh, we, we won't achieve anything in a dialogue between Israel and the Palestinians. Any dialogue that Israel had with the Palestinians was cynically manipulated and used to oppress the Palestinians even more and to get international, more international legitimacy for the oppression. So we're talking here about the struggle of decolonization. Uh, when you decolonize uh, Palestine, I don't think you want to hear the arguments of the colonizer. The colonizer is present in the, on the ground every day. I don't need him also in Harvard. He's there every time. It reminds me about this stupid this, uh, uh, this debate that Hillary Clinton, uh, among the many other stupid debates that she had, when she was leading the American position accusing a, a Palestinian books of not recognizing Israel. I remember I was with her on, on a panel somewhere, uh, and, and I said, do you really think the Palestinians in the West Bank don't know that Israel exists? <laughs> they open the window from the school and they see an Israeli tank in the schoolyard. Do you think you need to tell them that Israel exists? Uh, uh, this was, of course, ridiculous. Um, and in a similar way, I, I think, no, the time now is to boycott any official spokesman of Israel, not to give them one minute of speaking, of expressing their position. We don't want to hear them. We want to condemn them for what they are doing, and we will talk to them when they change their policies and ideologies, not one minute before that. Um, the question of whether Israel is a democracy, someone asked about it, I don't remember whom. Uh, you, hi. Um, Yes, as, as you know, this is a slogan that worked very well for Israel for many years, but, you know, a, a country that uh, occupies uh, almost six million people uh, without giving them the basic human rights and civil rights cannot be a democracy. A country where the vast majority of the land belongs to the Jewish people and uh, is never going to be sold to non-Jews. Uh, is not a democracy, a country which has a large number of community centers and, and cities which are exclusively Jewish, and you cannot be part of the, this uh, uh, settlement or habitant because you are not a Jew, uh, a country that has the nationality law of December 1918, which is a, 
uh, a proper apartheid law of the worst kind. There's so many uh, uh, aspects to Israel's past and present that can easily be listed in order to show that this is a ridiculous uh, um, uh, assumption. Uh, the, the, what, what happens to some people in the West is what happened to people with apartheid South Africa for a while before people got uh, understood the reality there. That for the white community in South Africa, certain parts of their political system were democratic. But it was what they called heron folk democracy, the democracy of the master race. So the master race has its own democratic uh, uh, mechanisms, but the people under its boot don't even have a modicum of freedom and liberation. And therefore, this is something that is not difficult to refute. As I said in my lecture, we are not giving time and space to do it. We have to demand that time and space. Um, uh, I, the last question was about the, the Israeli educational system that you asked. Uh, well, I, you know, I've, I'm a product of that educational system, obviously not a flawed product. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, we, uh, I remember our, our history classes are the same. Uh, Jews are always, pers always persecuted. Uh, basically, most of the world is anti-Semitic, either knowingly or unknowingly. The worst anti-Semites since 1948 are the Palestinians. Uh, there is really uh, no way out of it if you are only being fed with the educational curricula, the textbook, and you only hear your teachers in school, uh, uh, you can only grow up with this paranoia. And, which is worse, you get the moment you Nazify the, the, the Palestinians, or you weaponize anti-Semitism against the Palestinian, you justify everything you do to them by the fact that they're actually the successors of uh, the old anti-Semites. Uh, this is a very important part of the education, uh, and that's why people ask me this question all the time. Do people really don't understand is Israeli academia that why BDS exists? Because they say, I mean, intelligent professors in Israel would say BDS is anti-Semitic. Do they really don't understand? BDS? BDS is anti-Semitic. Okay. Uh, they say, can really these educated people not understand why people want to boycott Israeli academia? That's the only thing they can come up with. And I say yes, because what I described to you that happened in Rafah two days ago, the assassination of five children, for these professor is not a crime. It's defense. The Palestinians are not full human beings. Uh, there's nothing new in it. Look the way the British uh, massacred the Indians in 1857. Colonialism, British colonialism, was based on the same dehumanization. Once you dehumanize, and neoliberalism is doing now the same to workers. That's the connection. We are, we are fighting a logic of dehumanization. And Palestine, in many ways, is a symbol for that dehumanization. It's by no means the only uh, uh, case of dehumanization. But it's, it's something to, to tackle even more uh, seriously. Finally, I just want to mention one fact, because uh, that really now relates to the very good comments that were made. You know, in Germany, constantly there is a statistic of the origins of attacks on Jews in recent years. 
And the last statistics of the German government is that 92% of the attacks of Jews were done by right-wing neo-Nazis. The government of Israel has asked the German government not to publish the statistics uh, or to change it. Uh, uh, this is the level, this is the pathetic level we are in now. And we should be ready for this in this country. The Israelis would come and demand changing statistics and facts in order to serve their argument. And that's where the academia should be much more alert and much more uh, involved. But uh, when it comes to the truth, the Palestinians have nothing to lose. Thank you. find up-to-date articles at socialistworker.co.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers Party or find out more about us, you can go to swp.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on facebook.com slash socialistworkersparty, on Twitter at swpbritain, Instagram is socialist underscore workers underscore party, and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites, including Spotify, Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker and iTunes. 